Just a few words before we start today's episode. If you've been enjoying the Panorama podcast, please consider supporting the podcast. You can support us directly at patreon.com slash panorao, P-A-N-O-R-A-O, or you can visit us at panorao.com. There, you'll find updates on all of the latest projects coming from the Panorao team, as well as links to the Panorao podcast with Dr. Lupu. And as always, thank you for your support. You're listening to the Panorao podcast with Dr. Lupu. I'm at Lupu. A few years ago, I was out with my boss, duck hunting, of all things. I had never been before, and my boss invited me. It seemed like it would be something fun to do, so I tagged along. Now, my boss owns many hundreds of acres in a very rural part of my state. It was quite an adventure for somebody like me, a city boy, to get up at 3.30 in the morning, drive an hour outside of town, meet my boss in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant, and then drive with him many more miles off-road onto his land. We changed into waders, waded out into the middle of a very cold pond, and then shot at ducks. Later that morning, when we were cleaning and feathering the ducks, my boss and some of his friends started talking. The topic of conversation was Christianity and democracy. I didn't know it at the time, but I found out that my boss is a pretty hardcore evangelical Christian. I should mention that this whole episode took place in the run-up to the election of Donald Trump, and my boss and his friends were firmly in the Trump camp. My boss and his friends seemed convinced that Christianity was a precursor to democracy. It was a kind of necessary catalyst for democracy. And when I pushed back on that, my boss and his friends asked me if I could name one country that was a democracy that wasn't Christian. And I said, yes, yes, I can. How about the country of India? They responded by saying, well, that barely counts as a democracy. Then I said, all right, what about Japan or Taiwan? We stopped talking about Christianity and democracy after that. But this episode got me thinking, why did my boss and his friends think that there was such a connection between Christianity and democracy? It certainly didn't make any sense to me as a student of the classics. That's because my understanding of democracy is that it comes from ancient Greece, a pre-Christian society. Therefore, democracy and Christianity probably couldn't be related at all. But then I started thinking, what if I'm missing something? What if there's some kind of hole in my understanding? I find it very hard to believe that people who are otherwise reasonable people, like my boss and his friends, would come up with some kind of theory like this out of whole cloth. It seems highly unlikely to me that this group of people that I was talking to while duck hunting had somehow independently invented this idea. They must be getting it from somewhere. And even if it's not exactly correct, maybe there's a kernel of truth to what it was that they were saying. It was that realization that forced me to go back 
and revisit my understanding of the timeline of democracy. My specialty in the classics has always been in Roman history. Greek history has always been a little bit more foreign and a little bit more difficult for me to comprehend. I simply haven't spent nearly as much time learning Greek history, especially the early history of the Athenian people, as I have Roman history. So I went back to review the early history of Athenian democracy. Aristotle tells us that several different Greek city-states independently came up with democratic ideas. It just so happens that Athens kept the best records, or Athens records are the only ones to survive, and therefore it serves as a kind of paradigm for the others. The story goes that Solon, in the very early 6th century, about 594 BCE, was the first to come up with the foundations for the democracy that would follow. Once democracy was invented in Athens, it was not smooth sailing forever after. Instead, there would be revolutions and counter-revolutions, and the government would vacillate between things that look like monarchies or dictatorships, as well as representative democracies, similar to what we deal with in later Roman history. Throughout this entire period of Athenian democracy, one thing remained perfectly clear. The people practicing the democracy were pagan, and religious services and beliefs had a strong influence on the type of democracy that was practiced. A good way to think about it was that church and state in Athens were intimately tied together, despite the fact that the Athenians were practicing the original democracy. When I say that church and state were intimately connected, I don't mean to say that one was in charge of the other. Rather, the church, or the pagan religious authorities at the time, influenced quite a bit of power over the way democracy functioned. Furthermore, this relationship between church and state was not a one-way street. As much as the church influenced the way that democracy was practiced in Athens, the government often supported colleges of priests and other public religious expression. It's almost as if the two sides were in a symbiotic relationship with each other, always reflecting back from one to the other. This would remain true in late Republican Rome as well. The Romans practiced a type of representative democracy more similar to the one that our system was founded on. And the Romans, too, had a similar relationship between church and state. That is to say, they were intimately connected. In Republican Rome, the religious authorities wielded very much power over the way the government functioned. That's because the government was only allowed to hold council meetings on divinely appointed days. It was the job of several priests to read the signs sent by the heavens to determine whether or not the gods favored that particular day as a day whereby government could be conducted. The problems with this type of system and this type of relationship between church and state should be obvious. A famous example of how the Roman state religion 
could be manipulated to affect public policy came during the consulship of Julius Caesar and Marcus Bibulus. Caesar wanted land reforms and drafted a series of bills to try and resettle veterans from the army onto freshly conquered territory. Bibulus, the co-consul for the year, was an aristocrat and did not favor giving away land to these veterans. The story goes that every time Caesar would try to convene a meeting of the Senate or read out his bill in front of any of the relevant councils, Bibulus would use his connections inside the College of Priests to declare that that day was not an auspicious day for politicking. It was kind of an ad hoc way to shut down the government. Now Caesar, in his capacity as the Pontifex Maximus, or the chief priest of the College of Priests, used his office to ignore Bibulus's attack. Obviously, if the state religion was to be weaponized in this way, whoever rose to very high prominence within the state religion would necessarily have expanded political powers as well. This connection between church and state in Rome would survive the Republic and continue on into the imperial period. Perhaps the most famous example of this would come in the form of Augustus Caesar. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, Augustus, or as he was known at the time, Octavian, used his position within the state priesthood to declare that his adopted father had actually become a god. With this declaration, a new state cult would be born. This was known as the imperial cult. The idea was that in antiquity, many people believed that there was a connection between mortals and the divine. The boundaries between divinity and human affairs were much more blurry back then. This was a way that the ancients had of explaining certain innate characteristics of very talented people, or very beautiful ones. For example, Alexander the Great was said to have been the son of Zeus, and that was the ready explanation for how he was able to conquer the entire known world. But the same might be said of anybody who was particularly talented. This can be difficult for us to wrap our heads around in the modern era, because we tend not to think of things that way. If a man or a woman is particularly beautiful, we chalk that up to good genetics, not to divine favor. At any rate, there was a widespread belief in antiquity that particularly talented people could be bodily scooped up and elevated to the heavens, where they would continue to live as kind of divine beings, albeit of a lesser order than the Olympian gods. Augustus had every reason in the world to encourage this kind of belief. He, along with Julius Caesar, both argued that their lineage was semi-divine, that they were descended in deep antiquity from the goddess Venus through the mythical founder of Rome, Aeneas. It was only a matter of time, I suppose, before emperors began to be impatient. That is to say, they didn't want to wait until after they had died to become divinized. 
but rather preferred to be thought of as living gods in life. The first emperor to do this was Caligula. It didn't go over well. And there's a danger in adopting this kind of strategy. If the ancients believed that the very talented or the very beautiful were semi-divine, then a good way to undercut that belief is by being not particularly talented or beautiful, yet making the same claim based on your political office. Perhaps the best example of this would be the Emperor Claudius. He had a limp and a stutter, which in antiquity were considered signs of being mentally defective. And there was an uproar when Claudius was divinized after death. Perhaps another good example would be the Emperor Domitian. Nobody particularly liked Domitian either, and it was equally outrageous when he demanded to be dressed as Lord and God. The problem would only compound as time went on. When the Romans began to suffer military setbacks, it became harder and harder for anybody to credibly look at the emperor and say, that is a living God. This brings us to the figure of Constantine. Constantine the Great inherited an empire that was badly splintered and was still in recovery from a long period of civil war and instability. Modern scholarship tends to view Constantine as a political operator, somebody who was interested in encouraging uniformity within his greater empire. Keep in mind, the Roman Empire was always a very diverse place, religiously, ethnically, linguistically, you name it. When Constantine legalizes Christianity and encourages its spread, we think that perhaps he was trying to do so as a way of uniting his people under a common Roman identity. Christianity was still a very young religion at the time. By the time Constantine legalizes it, it's only perhaps 200 years old. If Constantine meant to unify the empire under this new philosophy, he almost couldn't have chosen a worse one to do it with. This is because early Christianity itself was very diverse. And Christianity came with an additional problem, one that the pagan religions did not share with it. That is to say, because it was a monotheistic religion, it implies that there is only one correct answer and only one right way to practice it. If you believe in a monotheistic model of the world, that is to say, there is only one God, that God is the true God, all other gods are either false or fabricated, therefore, any religious energy spent in deviation from this one true God is misapplied effort. That is to say, we, monotheists, who have discovered the truth, are the only ones that are correct, and everyone else, necessarily, is wrong. As Christianity would develop in its earliest phases of history, many divergent or heretical branches would come into existence. Some examples of these branches would be Arianism. Arianism got its start in Alexandria. Many parishioners at the time were swayed by the preacher Arius, who taught that Jesus Christ was a mortal man, a prophet, but not entirely a god. And in fact, 
many competing theories as to the nature of Christ would cause many more schisms within the church. The Council of Nicaea, called by Constantine, was meant to heal these schisms and to unify the church. From that day forward, church structure would come to mirror Roman governmental structure more and more and more. That means that Christianity would become less and less pluralistic with time. Not exactly fertile soil for democracy. In fact, Christian leadership in time would come to fill the power vacuum in the West left by the office of the emperor. As the emperor in the western half of the Roman Empire became ever more weak and irrelevant, the office of Patriarch of Rome would become stronger and take more and more of an active role in politics. Perhaps the best example of this would come when Attila the Hun would invade Italy and lay siege to the city of Rome. The Patriarch of Rome at the time, also known as the Pope, Leo I, exited the gates of the city and reasoned with Attila, telling him to leave and to spare the city. For whatever reason, Attila was convinced and turned around and left. This would amount to nothing less than a political coup by the office of Pope. And indeed, as time would march on, the Pope would grow in secular power to the point where he could command armies and also directly governed a wide swath of territory through central Italy. These were known as the Papal States. The last little bit of the Papal States are still with us today in the form of Vatican City. This is why Vatican City is its own country, a microstate independent from the Italian government. The anti-democratic sentiment shared both by the Roman imperial authorities as well as the church would continue on in Eastern Europe as well. While there was an end to the Western Roman Empire, the Eastern Empire continued, albeit in a weakened state, well into the medieval period. In the East, the emperor would retain his authority over the church, and for this reason, the Patriarch of Constantinople never quite grew to have the same sort of temporal power that the Pope would. And so then, it should come as no surprise that those countries that inherited the political and religious institutions directly from Rome would be the ones to adopt democracy the slowest. These are countries like Spain, Portugal, Italy, and France in the West, and countries like Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, in the East. But what about those countries in the north of Europe? These countries in the northern reaches of Europe would continue to be Catholic up until the 16th century. That was when a young priest in Wittenberg, Germany, named Martin Luther, would nail his 95 theses to the door of the city's cathedral. Martin Luther was particularly offended by the church policy of selling indulgences. These indulgences were meant to protect parishioners from future sins 
and guarantee their entry into heaven. That's why I like to call them tickets to heaven. If you knew that you might sin gravely in the future, you could visit the church, pay them a lot of money, and then be issued an official indulgence. Of course, this type of rebellion against church authority would lead to centuries of warfare between Catholic and Protestant. Rebelling against the Catholic Church's control and domination over religious matters would have many, many consequences downstream. First and foremost, these new groups of Christians would need to figure out how to pick their clergy. Under the Catholic system, church organization was divinely appointed. That is to say, the Pope had a special relationship with God, and he would then use that relationship to inform his greater decisions about how the church would resolve a conflict, or about who the church would promote to higher office within its power structure. The most democratic practice that the Catholic Church would ever engage in would come when it was time to select a new pope. The College of Cardinals would lock themselves in the Sistine Chapel and begin campaigning for support within that college. These cardinals would then vote. Whoever had the unanimous vote at the end would become the new pope. It's funny because this process always seemed to mirror a certain process used by the Roman Senate on rare occasion. At least twice in Roman history, I can think of examples whereby the Roman emperor died with no heir, and the senators would then vote amongst themselves to choose who the new emperor would be. The first time this happened was after the death of Domitian. The senators would choose one of their own, an elderly senator named Nerva, the second time, the senators would choose a man named Pertinax after the death of Commodus. But if the new Protestant church was consciously rejecting all of this, then how were they to choose who was going to lead every individual congregation? In this case, the congregation would meet in their church, and everybody would get a chance to talk about who they wanted to listen to every Sunday morning. Once it became apparent that everybody's voice had been heard and duly considered, the congregation would vote. It's almost like they adopted the exact same process from the College of Cardinals, but deployed it on the micro level from congregation to congregation. This seems far more democratic than the other way of doing things. It just so happens that the Calvinist branch of the Protestant Revolution retained several ideas that would later find themselves into democracies throughout the north of Europe, and eventually the burgeoning United States. Perhaps the most important idea that the Calvinists came up with was a separation between church and state. This, of course, flies in the face of tradition. In those Catholic countries in Western Europe, oftentimes the government really did mirror 
the organization and the rationale used by the Catholic Church. This came in the form of the divine right of kings. The idea was that the king was divinely appointed. He had a special relationship with God. He would then make decrees, and everybody else had to obey them, because to question the king's commands was to question God's commands. The Calvinists argued for separation between church and state by way of an episode in the New Testament. This can be found in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. It's the story of the provocative questioners. A group of Pharisees came to Jesus, and they said to him that they knew of his reputation for being righteous and overall a good guy. They asked him if Jews should pay taxes to Rome, hoping to trap him. If Jesus were to answer, no, I don't think Jews should pay taxes to Rome, he would open himself up to a charge of treason and could be arrested and even killed for it. But Jesus doesn't answer that way. He calls the questioners hypocrites, and he asks one of them to produce a Roman coin that they can pay the taxes with. Of course, one of them does and shows Jesus the coin. And Jesus asks, who is it that's portrayed on the coin? And whose inscription is on it? And they respond, well, Caesar, of course. And then he says the famous line, well then, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's, i.e., Caesar's business is his business and God's business is his business and never the twain shall meet. So it would seem, in a sense, my boss was right. A particular kind of Christianity did have an effect on the development of democracy as we understand it today. But here's something that my boss missed. It was Protestants who initially came up with the separation between church and state and yet, it's evangelical churches now that are particularly interested in lobbying and inserting themselves into politics. I wondered whether or not I had any basis in reality to come to that last conclusion. So I went onto the Pew Research Center's website and found the following statistics. As of January 2019, white Catholics had a 44% support for Donald Trump's policies and presidency, whereas non-whites had 26%. Evangelical whites, these are Protestants, had 69% support, and Pew didn't give any numbers for non-white evangelicals. The reason for these differences in support is that the official position of the Catholic Church is not to interfere in secular politics and not to take sides. This hasn't been the case with evangelicals for some time now. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? You've been listening to the Panorama Podcast with Dr. Lupu. I'm Matt Lupu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>